0: Have you ever wondered what it would take to become a millionaire? In the classic book, The Millionaire Next Door, they explore seven common factors between the millionaires around us and spoiler, they're not who you think. After the introduction, we'll explore three takeaways and three application points to your own financial life that will make you one, two, or three steps closer to becoming the millionaire next door yourself. Welcome to the delve into money podcast. I am your host, Curtis Haney. This is the personal finance podcast where we attempt to demystify money by reviewing books and applying what we learn to our own financial journeys. Welcome to episode three. Today, we're going to talk about The Millionaire Next Door and the impact that this book has had and what we can take away from this book. I'm excited about this. This is one of, I feel like for me, this is one of the most influential financial books that I've read. And we'll break down why that is as we walk through this episode. This book, The Millionaire Next Door, was written by Thomas Stanley and William Danko. Thomas Stanley is is someone who who had a lot of influence this book was originally written in the 1990s i don't know what happened to to William Danko, but i know Thomas Stanley passed away a few years ago um he also had some other books that were kind of follow-ups to this but they were kind of the first ones who did research as to how millionaires what millionaires really looked like. And one of the things that they came to understand is that there are many, many Americans out there who are way more wealthy than they appear. Instead of striving and modeling our lives after high consumers, we should model our lives after the frugal wealth accumulators. This is what William Stanley talks about in this book and he talks about the high-consumption people, which he labels as UAWs, or under-wealth accumulators. And then he talks about the prodigious accumulators of wealth, or PAWS, P-A-W. And then he talks about the average accumulator of wealth, the AAWs. William Stanley came up with seven things that he felt like were markers of the people who became millionaires and when you read this book you'll see him walk through those seven things he'll use his research to really make his points it is a it is a good book with a lot of good information uh, some of which is now a little bit outdated just because of of when this book was written Uh, but all of the advice still applies and i think is still very very impactful. So when he talks about his portrait of a millionaire, there were some stats that I felt like were kind of interesting to to hear and, and to talk about. Based off of when this is written and where we are today, his portrait of a millionaire is really the portrait of a 1.5 millionaire, uh, inflation adjusted, that doesn't have quite the same ring to it. But million when he wrote this would essentially be someone who had $1.5 million in wealth today. So that's uh, something that's that's good to keep in mind as we walk through this. Five things that I took away, statistics that I thought were super important in in kind of what we're calling the portrait of a millionaire. Number one, self-employed people are 20% of the workers, but two-thirds of the millionaires and i don't think it's any shock that people who are self-employed are much more likely to accumulate wealth when you go work for a corporation you have a cap on the income you can make and this is great for a lot of people because it provides what they think of as stability whereas self-employed is seen as not quite as stable but as you i'm sure many of you have heard and and thought about If you're working for a company, you have one income, one stream coming in. If that stream goes away, you're broke. Whereas if you're self-employed, your customers are considered to be your streams of income. And so you could have 10, 20, 30 streams of income. You may lose some, but you're not going to lose all. You'll still have something coming in. At least that's the theory. Being self-employed also means that you can work as much as you like you can do whatever you do and your income is going to reflect the amount that you work so i thought that was super interesting Uh, definitely shows the self-employed path is something that is helpful towards becoming a millionaire but you have to really perform because it's all on you another attribute in the portrait of a millionaire was that realized. Annual income was less than seven percent of their overall wealth, so if we talk about a portfolio of one million dollars, their annual income would typically be seventy thousand dollars and I don't know you know I thought this was interesting, but I don't know if this is an after effect or a pre effect. I think that that maybe an after effect may be something that you see. Uh, but I think it also helps. It's good to know or think about, because we think that millionaires are people that are bringing in a ton of annualized income. But the reality is is that you don't have to bring in a ton of income to become a millionaire, and, and it's really that difference between your spending and your income that is most important. So we'll talk about that a little bit more later. Number three: 80 uh, percent of the millionaires were first generation. And this goes against some of the discussion and talk out there that that all of this wealth is held among this small group of people and others don't have access. I think we could get into all sorts of political discussion. And I think there's definitely some credence to it being harder to take those steps up than it used to be. But even with that, still 80% of these millionaires were first generation. The fourth attribute. Is that they all had go to hell funds, as he called it, and meaning that they could live for 10 years without working. I think that this is something that we should all strive towards. I don't know if 10 years is the right number, but this gives you the freedom to make decisions a little bit differently. And then number five, they invested 20% of their income. And I think this is something that is a precursor to them being a millionaire. I've seen some other numbers that could have gone up to as much as 25% of their income, but it is no secret to accumulate wealth. You have to save a significant portion of your income, which is going to help you create wealth. One of the quotes early on in the book says, building wealth takes discipline, sacrifice, and hard work. I think We see people as lucky. We see people as just happening to be in the right place at the right time. But building wealth is a long game. We hear about the overnight millionaires or the overnight successes, but the reality is building wealth for 99% of people takes discipline, sacrifice, and hard work. We're going to talk briefly about the three takeaways that I had. We'll take a little bit of a break and we'll come back and we'll talk about the financial application to your life. Takeaway number one, you become a millionaire next door by living well below your means. This is accomplished by playing great defense, having a budget and planning for the future. In the book, The Millionaire Next Door, they talk about playing great defense and and that leads to the question what does this mean well they talked about it in a couple of different ways they talked about having a low amount of spending and not caring about your physical possessions not not caring about the status symbols that many people care about but then they also talked about the husband and wife being on the same page in this situation. Especially in the 90s, since men were so often the high wage earners, they put one of their keys is that the wife would support lower spending habits. One of the quotes in the book from one of the people that they interviewed uh, even went as far as to say that they had to encourage or, or push their wife to actually spend money that they needed to, to really spend. The reason this is important is you got to get both spouses on the same page. We'll talk, I'm sure, at some point here early on about I plan on bringing my wife on and talking about finances as a couple. But this is definitely so, so true because if you have people working in different directions, you have people not aware of what each other are doing, you can be working against each other, and the work done by the right hand can be totally offset by the work done by the left hand and in one of those works by the right hand would be saving and then by the left hand would be spending if it's if it's going out quicker than you can pull it back it's just going to make it very very hard to build wealth the other thing is when you talk about playing great defense is you can't play defense if you're not talking i think about playing basketball great defenses in basketball talk to each other and know where each other are. And I think this is super important to doing well financially and and definitely played out in some of the research that was done in this book. And then finally on this front, it's kind of what I already talked about a little bit. William Stanley says that the millionaire next door, in his words, is frugal, frugal, Frugal. That was him using the three frugals, not me. And I think that is absolutely a piece to this. I think that frugal mindset is going to serve you well no matter what stage of life you're in. I think it's interesting when you talk about the millionaire next door and you talk about them being business owners, that frugality works when they're struggling and it sticks with them as they grow. From his research, He talked that the wealthy are more likely to shop, haggle, and negotiate in any circumstance, and so I think that that's an interesting. That's a mindset thing. That's something some of us struggle with, especially in today's economy. It's not as common as it was back in the day, but I think there are definitely still places that you can do this, and still places that you can adopt this mindset. Number two, uh, when we talk about The millionaire next door is that they have a budget. I think there's this perception out there that if you're a millionaire, you do not need a budget. But the reality is, is we always need to know where our money goes. Maybe this is a habit that they just carried over from before they were a millionaire. But if you are a millionaire and you're not tracking what you're doing, you're very quickly not going to stay a millionaire. The other thing that having a budget does is it is it establishes a baseline of spending. Two-thirds of those surveyed in the book knew how much they spent on food, clothing, and shelter. I think you'd struggle to find a third of the population who knew what they spent on food, clothing, and shelter. This is a clear separator And I think that even if they don't budget in the same way they did uh, when they were struggling or when things were tight, they're absolutely still budgeting. Uh, The overall majority are still budgeting even as a millionaire. Their budget may be more simple. They may be just tracking their big, you know, shelter, food, savings, investing, and then general overall spending category other than that. And and maybe your budget doesn't need to be as tight as it did, but that budget is going to, again, help you establish those baselines. Quote from the book, it says, if you are not yet wealthy, but want to be someday, never purchase a home that requires a mortgage that is more than twice your household's total annual realized income. I think this is great Still today, and I know that this may not be possible in certain parts of the country, but it absolutely is a good rule of thumb to work by. Number three, we need to spend time planning for the future. William Stanley talked about clearly defined goals helped those millionaires have a better future and led to more happiness. I think we can all absolutely learn from this. I think this is something that that is easy to get off track on, but we need those short-term and long-term goals and we need to consistently talk about and refine those with those in our household. The reality of the matter is if you don't spend time planning, this goes back to the first point I made of if you and your spouse are not on the same page, You're going to be running in different directions, setting and establishing a plan and defining goals, whether that be net worth goals, whether that be family planning goals, whatever that looks like. These millionaire next doors spent significantly more time planning for the future. If they did it, I'm going to do it. And I think you should do it too. Takeaway number two. The millionaire next door allocates their time, energy, and money in ways that are conducive to building wealth. Money is a resource that we cannot get back when we squander it, so we need to treat it with care. I think that last sentence kind of says it all in there. Money is a resource, and when we squander that resource, that resource is very difficult to get back. I think about, as a married couple, my wife has a wedding ring. I saved for this ring. I went and I tried to find a really good deal on this ring, and I gave it to her, and she cherishes that ring. Thankfully, I have great taste. I got her something that she loves, which was probably, let's just be realistic, it was most likely luck. But that ring is treated with care. That ring is taken off when she's doing more vigorous or more physical labor. That ring is cleaned periodically uh, with these at-home kits. That ring is taken back to where it was purchased and cleaned by them. If there's a diamond that goes missing, that is... A source of angst for her and for us. Just as you treat that ring, we should treat all of our money. The money should be cherished and we should know, going back to number one, we should know where it's going. Number two, we spend our time on what is important to us. And I've actually said this for a long time. And when I went back and was looking at this book, I had a note in there that said this and had that you spend time on what is important to you. And I think I even said this in the trailer or in the introduction. But I read this book back in the the mid teens, like 2012 to 15, somewhere around in that area. So I've read this about, you know, 10 years ago maybe. And I think I even read it before that point, but that's just the copy that I have is shows that's when I last read it this is so, so important. And if we allocate our time, our energy, our money to things that are not going to take returns, are not going to be steps forward in our wealth accumulation to become that millionaire next door, it's going to work the opposite way. And I'm not saying that everything we do, everything, that every action that you take has to go towards this wealth accumulation, towards becoming that millionaire next door. But we should absolutely look at the time, look at the energy, look at the money we spend, and ask if it's conducive to building wealth. We're going to do things that aren't conducive to building wealth, and that's okay. But we want to make those decisions intentionally. Number three, millionaires aren't typically active traders. This goes back to they allocate their time and energy to things that they feel like they can win at. And in a general sense, millionaires do not feel that they can win at active trading. And when they do actively trade, thought was interesting, they focus on far fewer offerings and master, attempt to master a much smaller variety of stocks. Now, I don't feel like this should be a hot button topic, but I do think in today's world, it absolutely is. Fewer than one in 10 millionaires are active traders, or at least at the time this book was written. This counters today's culture where the idea of options, meme stocks, cryptocurrency, all of these things result in active trading. Robinhood even gamifying the act of trading and social media. I could totally get off on on a whole tangent here, but social media is filled with people who talk about their system, about how you can buy options, about how you come rich, and they talk and they sell their little courses, they sell their communities, and then you see all their testimonials. And it is absolutely creating a culture that thinks that they can actively trade. I think that they absolutely cannot. And I'll give you a little bit of information why I think that. When you look at trading, when you look at hedge funds, when you look at index funds, when you look at mutual funds, passive or active, most funds or most stocks. Let me let me back up. Most stocks underperform the market average. I have a have a chart I'm going to put in there. This chart shows like what the return of stocks were between 1996 and 2019. The average return was 239%. The median return was 52%. If you look at the frequency of the returns, you see that most individual stocks fell below the 200% return and with actually the three highest bars on the whole chart being 50% return over that that period or less. So that means the majority of stocks had less than a 50% return But then you see on the far right, there was a bar that goes up of over 5% frequency of stocks with a 1,000% return or more. So what that tells us is that the majority of stocks in the market are losers. If you're picking yourself, the reality is you're most likely to pick losers. On a short term, you can probably pick winners, but the reality is you're gonna pick losers. Another thing in this is, You think about active funds versus passive funds. You would think active funds, you have the best managers, you have the most smart people with money, but historically, active funds have underperformed the market in all sectors. The link on this, I'll again put this link, it's from ifa.com, and it shows very clearly that in this report that was done that active funds are not good at beating the market. The Financial Samurai is a website as well. I'm going to provide that link, but it's a great resource, really in-depth discussing the difference between these types of funds. So active funds, you think of these are some of the smartest, and then you think the same thing about hedge funds. You think hedge funds are the, the best and the brightest that we've got, so hedge funds should kill the overall market, but Barron's, in an article I pulled there, So that hedge funds beat the market on an average by 1.5%. And these are the best of the best. The the question to ask is if a hedge fund can beat the market by 1.5%, what can you expect to beat the market by? And I'm going to say, you can't expect to beat the market at all. Another element of this is, is for the last 10 years, we have been on a long run-up. Sure, we've had dips, but all of these gurus and people claiming to have success, you have to look. How long have they been investing? I'd say the majority of people that you could see and get pulled in by have been investing for less than five years. And I've seen a significant uptick in people that have only been investing since after COVID started. And we saw what happened with COVID. It was an extreme drop and an extreme run-up. Success in that market does not mean you know what you're doing. It does not mean you're performing well. To know how someone is at handling or how, how good someone is in the market, we need to see them in all situations. And so we have to see them when performance lags. And so if something does not have a 10 year history or more than 10 year history, because that's when the last crashes were, then we can't even begin to trust them because all of those returns could be wiped out in a matter of days in a crash. Takeaway number three, the millionaire next door raises children who are independent. They do not give money to their children regularly or provide economic outpatient care, as Dr. Stanley calls it. They, in turn, raise children who are financially self-sufficient. This point, this takeaway was super, super interesting to me. And part of the reason is, is I'm, we're expecting a child. So I'm thinking about how we're going to raise our child today, how we're going to raise our child in 5, 10, 15, 20 years as they go out into the world. And I also think about how we live and how that affects our child, because the lifestyle that me and my wife live is going to affect the way my child interacts with the world. This point was really interesting to me because, and I think you kind of have some cause and effect things going on here. I think many of these Millionaire Next Doors, if you look that 80% of them are first generation wealthy, they did not want to provide their kid with the assistance because they knew what they came from and they wanted their kid to go through the same thing. When he talks about economic outpatient care, I think that's a super interesting concept. And actually, it's a concept, if you think about it, this is parents providing for money needs of their children. And I don't, I don't think it's all bad. I, I'm not saying that if you, that if you get this or, or you're blessed with this or you're, you're blessed to be able to give this to your kids or someone else, This absolutely does not mean a bad outcome, but it does have a lot of potential to hurt. It can hurt actually both the parent and the child. It hurts the child's ability to be able to make it through hard times on their own. If every time that they're going through something, you are bailed out of that situation, you don't develop good responses to risk or any difficulty or dangers. And that's actually one of the quotes. It says, courage can be developed but it cannot be nurtured in an environment that eliminates all risk, all difficulty, and all dangers. The other side of this is the parent also struggles in this situation as well because parents feel that obligation to help their children, which is completely understandable. But giving that money away may seem like it's a small thing, but it actually hurts that parent's ability to accumulate as well. And and in the book, they talk about there's some, there's some outcomes related to people giving versus not giving and those that did not give had better outcomes and their children had better outcomes financially. So it's super interesting to see that and to read that and to learn about that. Another thing is, is while we don't want to provide that outpatient care is that that children imitate their parents' consumption. And so if you're giving that outpatient care, if you're giving that money, that child is going to spend it. And and actually giving it that money is something that results in us thinking, well, I need to spend this. I need to show that the fruits of what they gave me are helping me. And so it actually de-incentivizes saving or investing of that money. Super interesting psychologically that I never really thought about, but something that absolutely I can see playing out because I can just think about the fact that if if you receive money, there is a desire for the other person, the person that was giving the money, to see the outcome of that money. And I think about this with just birthday gifts, right? If you get money from someone for your birthday, you feel the obligation to tell them what you're going to be purchasing with that. So the same thing applies in these situations as well. Another thing with the millionaire next door is that their child, their adult children, are economically self-sufficient. And this is where I talked about what's the chicken and the egg here, right? Are they self-sufficient because of what they grew up in? Or are they self-why how are they self-sufficient? So I'm not going to get into that, but there were a few things that I thought were interesting about this discussion. They talked about the millionaire next door minimize discussions with adult children that centered on them receiving money and that these discussions can lead to strain on relationships and create expectations about what's going to come their way the second piece of that is is that we want to teach children not to consume but to achieve consumption is a focus on an outcome of something they're getting whereas achievement is more focused on the individual's actions. And I think that that's something that that we can all learn from, something that's important for all of us, is it's so easy to focus on outcomes instead of the internal actions that we take. The other thing is, is if we focus on achievements, that focus on achievements creates internal motivations, whereas a focus on consumption, you're looking more outward trying to get what you can get. 10 rules that he had for how to deal with your children. Rule number one never tell children that their parents are wealthy. Number two, teach your children discipline and frugality. Number three, assure your children don't realize your affluence until established. Number four, minimize discussions of inheritance. Number five, never give cash or gifts as a negotiation strategy. Number six, Stay out of your adult children's family matters. Number seven, don't compete with your children. Number eight, always remember your children are individuals. Number nine, teach your children to achieve and not to consume. Number 10, tell your children there are things more valuable than money. Thought overall these were some good rules, and so that's the reason I listed them here. We're going to take a real quick break right here. But when we come back, we're going to talk about the financial action steps and how to apply them to your life. If you've made it this far, I want to thank you so, so much for listening to the podcast. I would love for you to go on your favorite platform and give us a rating and review. It would be extremely helpful, the social proof that people need to join us. If you have a book that you think would be great to talk about or you have something that you're struggling with financially, I'll put a link in the show notes. Click on that link and give us the feedback that you have because early on in this journey, it's super, super important that we hear from you so we can make this show what you, the listener, wants. So, again, I want to thank you so, so much and we'll be back to the episode right after this. All right, we're back. Another quote real quick from the book before we jump right in. says, if you live below your means, you don't have to worry about being forced to reduce your standard of living. And I think this is something that we can all learn from. If we live below our means, We can make completely different decisions than if we're living right up on the edge. If we're living up on the edge, we can't afford to quit our job if it becomes untenable. If we live to the edge, we can't afford to take advantage of an opportunity that comes our way. For the three action steps that I have, I have first, choose a field to work in. And I know many of us are already out in the workforce, but one of the things he talks about in the book is that most of these Millionaire Next Doors were not in fields of work that you would consider to be typically fields that you consider to be rich or that you might consider to be wealth accumulators. He talks about them just being regular old people that are in businesses that they enjoy And one of the things is that character matters most of all. And I think that that's absolutely something that we can do. So if you're looking for something, if you're trying to decide what you want, I think he proved that the field doesn't matter. And that you just really need to look for something that you know you can enjoy and then hold true to your character because that holding true is going to result in better success. Number two action steps, we need to be saving over 20% of our income. And I'm not going to get into the nuts and bolts of this right now. Harris Group did a did a poll and that that was more recent said average millionaires and I'll I'll provide a link average millionaires today save 23% of their income. We could get into a discussion is that only saving is that saving and investing? Okay, maybe you're not there today. But let's just start. 20% saving and investing. If we can get to that in the long run, 30 years, 40 years later, you will be a millionaire. You will be more financially secure. And I absolutely think while we may not be able to make that change today, we can definitely get there with some planning in the long term. And I think while again, we did not get into this in this episode, no matter your income, you can find ways to save. We can make decisions with our money that allow us to save and invest what we need to save and invest. There's story after story of people who worked in grocery stores or lower paying jobs and when they passed away, it was found that they had a fortune because of the way they'd managed their money. It may not feel possible, but it is possible. So we need our goal to be that we need to start by saving 20% of our income. Once you get to that point, we can discuss further. And maybe that turns into invest 20% or invest 23%. And then you save over and above that for other sinking funds using a Dave Ramsey term that you might have. That is step number two that we can take away from today's episode. Number three is let's put a plan together. I would guess that most of you out there do not have a financial plan. Maybe because you're listening to this, you guys are in the minority or yeah, the minority and you actually do have a plan and that is great. If you have a plan, let's review that plan. As I've worked on putting this podcast together, this is something that I've realized that I'm extremely passionate about. I'm going to be putting together some resources. I'm not making any promises. It's probably going to be months or a year down the line, but I want to put together some resources that will help us as a community put together a better financial plan. And it's something that needs to be not just talked about once, but it needs to be repeated on a regular rhythm. And and this is something that has been super valuable for us, something that we're still working on because frankly, it's easy to miss or forget about those meetings that we're supposed to be doing. So that is, that is action step number three. Uh, number one is think about your field. Where do you wanna work? Number two is save 20% or more of your income. If you're saving more than 20%, let's change that to invest 20%. And then number three, let's put together a plan. And in that plan, we need it to be a one-year, five-year, ten-year, retirement year plan and and go from there. So thank you so much for joining me today. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to hear what you learned. I'd love to hear what you're going to apply from what we talked about today. You can reach out to me at Curtis with a K, K K-U-R-T-I-S at delveintomoney.com. Let me know what you're going to do different because you listened to this episode today. We'd love for you to subscribe and share this podcast with someone you think could gain value from the content. Please go to delveintomoney.com if you want to suggest a book to review or just connect. Until next week, remember, healthy financial decisions our intentional financial decisions. Intentional decisions this week lead to healthy financial futures. Start today and see you next week.